Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by MoonPay. MoonPay is the leading Web3 infrastructure company trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide. MoonPay is your portal to Web3, a reimagination of the internet where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. MoonPay makes it fast and simple to jumpstart your Web3 journey. Quickly use your debit or credit card to buy and sell crypto and purchase digital collectibles. Visit moonpay.com slash trapital to get started. Before we get started, let's talk about the latest release from Trapital, the 2022 Culture Report. This is our first ever report. It's our breakdown on the most important trends happening right now in music, hip-hop, and more. I'd like to give a quick thanks to our presenting sponsor, Dice, for making this possible. And you'll hear from Dice's president, Russ Tannen, on the podcast in a minute. But before we get into that, I want to talk about a few key findings from the report. In the opening section, we talk about hip-hop's decline. And you've been likely reading a few articles about this. If you're in the industry, you've been following this for some time. But a lot of the rapid growth that hip-hop had in that 2013 to 2018 era is no longer happening. And in fact, in 2021, this was the first year that hip-hop's share of U.S. recorded music revenue has actually declined. To be specific on the numbers perspective, even though hip-hop's revenue did grow from 2.3 2.3 billion to 2.7 billion its share of that total revenue is 228.2% which is now down half a percent to 27.7%. And this isn't just hip hop this includes R&B as well. And one of the big things folks are wondering is why? Why is this happening? Well, there's a few things that I think that are important to call out and I want to mention them. Three key drivers behind this trend. First is streaming's continued growth. The entry barriers to release music are lower than ever, so there's more fragmentation with both artists and fans. And listen, music is no longer solely controlled by Western culture, and success is not the boom and bust that it once was. People can have success in so many different shapes and sizes. And in the past couple of years, a lot of hip-hop's share of revenue continued to grow quite fast, which is great, but... This past year, and I think this will continue in 2022 as well, a lot of that share has went to Latin music. And in the streaming era, Latin artists can become superstars without quote-unquote crossing over to make English language music. This is a great thing. Artists like Bad Bunny and Ozuna and others, they've been able to gain market share. They've been able to record music and recorded their own local languages, their own culture, their own slang. And it's one of the things that I think is very promising and amazing about where the industry is right now. I think we'll actually see Afrobeats likely have a similar jump in growth as well. And just to share a few numbers there, Latin music's total revenue jumped from around 377 million to 531 million from 2020 to 2021. And its share of recorded revenue is 4.7 to 5.4%. And this is all before Bad Bunny's latest album where that has dominated the charts for 2022. So I can't even imagine how much bigger this number is, but just stay tuned for that. That said though, Bad Bunny and a lot of these other artists in Latin America that are categorized as Latin music, they call themselves rappers. So at some point, it should be categorized as hip-hop, right? 
We don't do that with other genres. Adele isn't British. Adele is considered pop music. They don't put Harry Styles in the British category. He's in the pop category. Even if it isn't from America or the US, hip-hop culture is global and these categories should reflect that. So hopefully that's one thing that we'll see. The second reason that this is happening for hip-hop though is that early mover advantages don't last forever. Hip-hop is always early on the latest platforms, whether it's MySpace Music, to YouTube, to ringtones, to streaming, to TikTok, and more. The list goes on. But the high streams that hip-hop was able to have during streaming's rapid growth phase, especially in the mid to late 2010s, that couldn't last forever, so other genres would inevitably catch up. The third reason, though, and this is a bit more structural in terms of how things are counted, is two changes that we've seen in two trends as well, which is one, the end of bundles and the limited vinyl supply. And this has to do with how albums are charted and how sales are represented, but it makes a big difference. So let's start with bundles. So if you think back to the late 2010s, especially when streaming took off, you saw more and more artists bundling their albums with merch, sometimes at a discount, so that they could place higher on the charts. It paved the way for Travis Scott and folks like that. Do you remember when Astroworld came out? Travis Scott had a full-on e-commerce bundle operation to go boost the sales for Astroworld. I think it had almost half a million sales its first week. But that short-lived sales tactic ended in July 2020. It was the right call, to be clear. Shit was starting to get out of hand. But... Remember, rappers tend to over-index on streaming revenue, so that shift away from bundles hurt hip-hop the most. This has to do with the broader decision to devalue streams in favor of album sales, but that's a whole other topic that we can get into a bit later. But it's actually somewhat related to this next point, which is about the limited vinyl supply. So vinyl, of course, is a legacy medium, but it's been a bigger and bigger source of record of recorded music revenue, especially in the past few years, but there's been a lot of supply chain issues that have constricted the supply, and anytime you constrict the supply, it's going to alter the demand. And in 2022, several pop stars like Harry Styles and Taylor Swift, they had huge vinyl weeks, hundreds of thousands of units sold, which is great for them. The challenge, though, is that a lot of hip-hop and R&B artists often have to wait several months after their initial release date for their vinyl debuts. Some of this may be due to pop stars submitting their albums further in advance for the lead time required to press the limited supply of vinyl. Some of it may also be due to labels prioritizing certain artists over others. But either way, it leads to a huge sales swing that ends up hurting hip-hop artists more than other genres because of this. And it makes it even harder to compare to something like streaming, which is completely democratized in terms of the access that folks have to be able to consume and purchase the product. So this is just a snippet of one of the insights that we have in the report. I really hope you get a chance to check it out. We have more insights on who's making money in streaming, the power laws of streaming, music investing trends for both startups and catalogs, TikTok and the impact, the monetization of of Twitch, and more. So please check it out if you haven't. There's a link in the show notes to download and check out the report. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the rest of the episode. At one point, I was booking in London a 150-capacity venue, and I thought it was amazing when 400 people would show up for the 150-capacity show, and we try and cram them all in. I always thought that was an amazing sign. Those shows were always free, but obviously now we're ticketing around the world many of the best 
100 to 200 capacity venues that exist in, in some of the best music cities in the world. So what's fascinating for us is to not just be speaking to the people that are running and booking those venues, but to be looking at the data of, okay, which shows sold out on and out at that level and who's got the biggest waiting list at that level. And we see a complete global picture of that. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. Today's guest is Russ Tannen. He's the president of DICE, which is a ticketing platform for live events that's working to make ticketing fairer for fans of live music they're also working to make sure that there's personalization so that fans have a better understanding for the music and the concerts from the people that they want to be able to see and they've been using a ton of analytics to just address some of the challenges that the live entertainment industry has faced over the years dice is one of the presenting sponsors for trapital's 2022 culture report that is out and available you can get that on the trapital website or if you're on the email list and it was great to talk to russ about some of those findings and also get a better understanding for the main problem that dice is trying to solve there are several aspects of the live ticketing business from scalpers and bots that are raising prices with artists and fans not necessarily being able to have the most direct connection possible and fans not always necessarily knowing what concerts are in their area, other people that they may want to see and be able to get personalized recommendations there. So Russ really brought us under the hood, painted us a picture of what the events business looks like. This is a company that started in the UK, was able to get a good amount of market share there and is now expanding into the US. So we talked about how they're focused on the venues, specifically that have capacity from 200 people up to 10,000, what that looks like, what the opportunities are, what some of the challenges are, and what he's ultimately looking forward to most. Here's my chat with Russ. All right, today we have Russ Tannen, who is the president of DICE, a company that is on a mission to help solve a number of the challenges right now in the ticketing and live events business. And I give you a lot of credit because this is a difficult business for a number of reasons. And you're entering a US market where I think there's so much opportunity for improvements with things. So it'd be great to hear for you all and for the folks listening, what your strategy is and why the US market's been so important for you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really good to meet you and to get a chance to have this conversation. I don't know why you think it's difficult. <laughs> it's It's been so straightforward. It's been such a breeze the last nine <laughs> years. No, it's definitely complicated. Before we jump into it, and I do want to tackle that one, I wanted to ask you a question first, actually. What was the first concert you went to, Dan? Oh, the first concert I went to. So I am in Jamaican and my parents are big Harry Belafonte fans, so I must have been nine or so. And we all went as a family to a Harry Belafonte concert. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. So he had came through. So that was the first one. Wow. What was the first one where you like bought a ticket or you're like going with your mates and you're like excited to go? Okay. The first one was actually like me going, it was a 50 cent concert. He had came through, they had this concert venue, the Meadows in the Hartford area. So yeah, we went to that. This is like right when he had like blown up. How was it? Amazing. I mean, at that age, it was amazing. I thought that it was the coolest thing ever. I mean, this was the person that everyone was talking about. Oh, you know, he got shot nine times. He's this mythical legend. And then you get to see him in this venue. And of course, you're also, you know, 
you're young, you're with your friends, you're finally like getting out, like people are finally starting to go different places. So I, I really enjoy that. And yeah, I mean, that was with my own money for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I love thinking about those memories. I found a picture of me going to my like first proper concert, which is like, I used to have hair, obviously, when I was a teenager. And it was like dyed green. And we were going to see Deftones and Linkin Park play. They were playing in London. I remember just me and all my mates going. It was like the most exciting thing ever to like go to that show. And I love like thinking about those things and that feeling and that emotion. Because I think like if you have like a really amazing experience early going to a concert and feeling all of those emotions about going to see live music, then it can really stay with you like your whole life. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to capture is that feeling for as many people as possible. And to get more people having those types of experiences like more of the time and really just spending less time at home. Like that's what we're really, that's what DICE is all about. Like more than being a app or being a company or all the other things that we're doing. Like it's really like, how do you get more people to feel like they're going to the 50 cent concert and just like, this is it. Like, <laughs> but thanks for sharing that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I moved to the US in April last year. So I'm joining on the call from, from New York at the moment. And we already had a presence here. We'd been building up the business in LA for a few years before. And obviously the pandemic hit. And I think coming out the pandemic, we realized that there was an opportunity to start working with a number of partners in New York and really focus on our growth here and building out a team. So when I got here in April, there was three people on the team here. We built that out to 70 people in this office and 100 people in the US team overall with other little posts in Miami and Nashville, as well as the team in LA. And yeah, I think it's a extremely competitive market, obviously. But I also think that one of the great things that the pandemic really showed us was just how big and how strong the independent music scene in the US really is. And a big part of that, I think, was the work that Dana Frank did and founding Neva and really uniting all of those independent venues together to lobby for the grants that they got to keep the businesses going. And I think that that was just like a really interesting thing that, to come out of it and something that will go on for a long time and, and last for a long time. Now that organization, and I think it helped to show everyone, you know, how strong the independent music scene is here and what a large opportunity for a company like ours that works only with independent venues and promoters has to build, you know, a very big business here too, and to support all the artists that are playing in those venues. So we really focus between 200 and 10,000 capacity. Those are the types of venues we work with. And for people that are listening that don't know what DICE is, you know, we're a mobile event discovery and ticketing app that's working directly with venues and promoters to, you know, increase sales for those shows and to do all of the things you'd be expecting a ticket company to do. So yeah, but that's really where we play. It's a very competitive space, but it's a bit different to thinking about arenas and stadiums and, you know, maybe that part of the live business. That makes sense. I do think that, of course, that you have, whether it's AEG or Live Nation, having those arenas and stadiums and a lot of the partnerships there, the independent opportunity is much more flexible. And I think there's less pure ownership there from a lot of the big players. But I do know that there's still competition from whether it's your folks like Eventbrite or others. How have you been able to work and gain market share given that dynamic and some of the other players from that 200 to 10k capacity venue yeah i think that we've been going for nine years now and we had originally worked as promoters we'd also run venues we're working in artist management before starting dice and i think we had a number of different perspectives from day one in building the company and the kind of foundational things that we focused on were probably a little different to someone 
who's maybe more coming from a technology background and seeing a market opportunity and looking at how to build for the venue client. Whereas we always kind of still had a management hat on the whole time. And also we're really thinking about how to build for the fan. And we've had this kind of laser focus on building for the fan experience. And that started all the way back with making it a completely mobile product, making the actual purchase of the ticket extremely easy, always showing the full price up front so you don't get that sticker shock at the end of the purchase when it's suddenly more expensive, stopping the tickets from being sold on, on resale, introducing functionality like the waiting list where if a show sells out, you can join a waiting list and if tickets get returned to that waiting list, you can just pick them up at the same price. All these things that we did very early that just built a lot of trust very quickly, I think, with fans to become like their preferred platform for, for tickets. And then through time, thinking even more about social functionality, connecting with your friends. We talk to fans all the time and fans would tell us the number one reason that they wouldn't buy a ticket for a show would be that they wouldn't know who to go with. But we would know that from all the fans that we had using the product, that there must be some that were already friends. So we made it so you could connect with your friends through the app, through your contacts. And then on an event level, you can actually see who from your friends is going to the show, who's been to see that artist before, who saved that event. You can also go on a view where you can just pick. So me and you could pick this page where it will show us events to go to together based on both of our musical tastes and shows we've been to before. So there's all these things that we built that are really just nothing to do with the person sat at the venue who's the ticketing manager. And they're all about the real end consumer being the fan. And I think that's just been a different approach to most ticket companies in the US previously that have built been more transactional. And so when we pitch, it's all about how do we actually significantly change how people are discovering the events at the venue and how do we increase the number of shows that they're going to by focusing all of their experience on the actual ticket purchase. And that's really paid off and that narrative has paid off. And when we think about a city like New York, where, you know, last April when I got here, it was still events weren't happening. So obviously, you know, the number of users on the app was extremely low. We only had a few partners signed, but think people were starting to think about putting shows on sale, but it was really early days. We were really selling a vision of what we could do in terms of driving sales and making people go to more shows. But now that we're 18 months in, we can see, you know, over a million people in New York City using the app every month. We can see over 40% of sales coming through Discovery, which is sales that we're driving. That's really significant for the venues and promoters that we're working with. And of course, for the artists playing those venues. So I think that New York's a great case study for us and we're excited to do it even more across the rest of the US and, and also around the world. We're already in London and Spain and Germany and France and Italy. So yeah, we're just getting started really. Let's talk a bit more about the consumer behavior aspect of this, because this is where I think you make the distinction. So many of the other events promoters, it's more focused on their relationship with the artist, right? They're essentially the end consumer or the venue itself. But then it's the fan that then sees the after effects of it, whether that turns out in how tickets are resold or how they're initially sold and offered in the first place and the fees and all the other things that come up. And you all are making it more so of the destination for someone that wants to come to a show and wants to check that out. And by also with some of the other measures you mentioned, not having scalpers, resell value or resell in general going directly to someone on the wait list. How do you feel like this piece of it 
has been because I think so much of this is just rewiring the psychology of how consumers think about attending live events. So of course, there's the business aspect of it, but there's also a bit of retraining the customer because I think for so many years, we've been trained to follow the way that it's been. I know. I also think that everything is always in flux, right? And everything's always changing and shifting. And I think that the moment you stop innovating is the moment you start like failing, right? You've got to keep kind of pushing things forward and thinking about keeping the right North Star, I think. And for us, keeping the fan experience as a North Star is, has been the thing that's really led to, I think, a lot of our success. And I think that with the resale piece, that's a really interesting one, how that's evolved even in the last kind of nine years since we started. And I think where we're at now is that we're so at odds with how, you know, some of the other ticket companies are doing it with integrated resale and this dynamic pricing debate that's obviously going on at the moment. And we're really at the complete opposite end of that, where we really believe that if you really rip off fans or give people an experience or perception that they're being ripped off, then the next time they think about what they're going to do with their spare money to spend on social activities or with their free time, they might not pick going to a concert. And we think it's such a short-term view to be doing those behaviors. And I think definitely in the sort of capacity size of shows that we're doing and the types of independent festivals and promoters that we work with, it's just not what people want either. So when we're pitching to those partners or, or talking to artists even about how we do things, which is really about stopping the resale of tickets and having this completely fair waiting list platform, then a lot of them love to hear that. And that's what they want to be pitched. They don't want to be pitched that we've built a system that could squeeze every dollar out of a fan who can happen to afford it. So I think that's a better approach to be doing it. I think like with the resale piece, especially a lot of the early success we had with artists was also on the fact that we could stop the resale of tickets. I was just thinking of when we worked with Kanye on the Project Wyoming launch parties around the US. It was very early for us when we just launched here. And you know that was one of the massive reasons that he actually wanted to use the platform was to stop the resale of tickets. So there's been lots of case studies like that, that we've had where just really big artists are trying to use us just to stop resale. And I think it's a misconception that, you know, larger artists are actually all trying to just make as much money as possible from the fan using that dynamic pricing or participating themselves in resale. How did the Kanye partnership develop? It was really very last minute and unexpected. And it was all happening from LA and Andrew, who's on our team and was in LA at the time running the, and setting up the business there had a call very late. And so it all happened while we were asleep in London and he'd been told to set up some links, no event details, all super secret. And then we were all in a meeting the next day and I remember him texting us saying, go to KanyeWest.com and it rerouted to a Dice ticket page for the show. So it was pretty, it was pretty wild. But yeah, it was via a promoter that we've been working with in LA who'd been sort of brought on to find, you know, locations for those shows and stuff. And there's been lots of other examples of that, but Great example of a large artist using the platform for protecting their fans. And yeah, it was just a good one to do. Do you ever experience or see any type of pushback from any artist specifically? Because one of the underlying things about scalpers is that a lot of times it's the artists themselves who also benefit from the secondary market just with the price that is seen as what people perceive as the value for going to a particular show of theirs. And also since some of these artists have also participated in buying their own tickets and selling them on the secondary market. Have there been any artists or instances where artists have had any pushback on that? 
No, like the way that we see it is we really focus on attendance. So by having the waiting list, making it easy to return a ticket, if you can't go, then we're going to be very, very close to 100% attendance on any sold out show. In fact, what we normally see is about a 15% increase in attendance when a venue switches from a traditional ticket company to Dice, which makes a big difference when you're in the room. And I think the artists get that. The other thing with the waiting list data that we have is that you can really see the true demand for an artist. So an example recently in London would be with Little Sims, where we did this small show and we had 11,000 people on the waiting list for her. And it's just, it was so easy for her to add another date on that show. So there's been thousands, we've had millions and millions of people on the waiting list and millions of tickets returned. But the really exciting story, I think, is always when an artist see those waiting list numbers building and actually adds a second date. And that's when they're really making money. That's a better way to do it, right? Really fulfill the full demand, actually have the right number of people in the room, not just a load of tickets unsold on secondary, or use that data properly to make sure that the next show on the tour is going to be the right size. So not missing opportunity on the next go round or on the next album. And that's one of the data pieces that we really pioneered and, and a lot of artists have used very successfully at this point. That makes sense. On the pricing piece of things, does the fact that the ticket price, once it's set, is not going to be any higher and it's not going to change, does that change either how you or the artist think about what that initial dollar amount should be relative to what they may do with the more traditional platform? Well, I think that the way that ticketing fees and fees in general on to tickets has kind of evolved has made it sort of less relevant. I think to have it kind of separate is kind of all part of the pie in a way. And we just always thought that the best way to do that was to show the fans the full price up front and explain that that includes any fees that related to the ticket. We also fight to keep fees kind of as low as they reasonably can be. So we hope that, you know, the tickets are as low as they can be. But the idea of a face value ticket in a world where that ticket is not available at that price anywhere, there's no box office to go to to buy a ticket from. There's no, you know, that ticket is never available at price. So to show that price anywhere to us feels a bit disingenuous to fans and really the I guess the theory is that you hook people in with the lower price and then you just sort of surprise them at the end and they won't care because they're already down the journey what we decided was that actually fans are smart and once you've been to one show <laughs> you know that's what's going to happen so it's better just to be upfront with people and say look this is the full price of the ticket including any fees that need to be added and you know that's it that's the price you're going to pay at the end in terms of how that informs pricing you know we don't actually inform pricing ourselves that's always down to you know the venue promoter agent artist and i don't know i don't know maybe sometimes because we see shows coming through now where they'll say actually let's put it up in 10 and make sure that that includes any of the fees or let's put that up for 20 or 30 and make sure that includes all the fees so maybe a little bit is starting to happen and and I, you know i hope that's the way that that it goes because people should really always be thinking about the final price that people are really going to pay and you know that's another thing that fans tell us all the time that they like about the platform it felt a little bit i think to begin with counterintuitive to show people a bigger price like it feels weird almost like to start but then actually if you speak to fans then they'll say no it's better to know be upfront how much is it going to cost me don't surprise me at the end and this extends industries as well, right? It's like the Airbnb thing. No one wants to be surprised to see the price double because the cleaning and service fee ends up being twice as much as the rental. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's just the way that we think things should be, you know, so it's a change. Like it's been one of the big things we talk in length about with partners, especially new partners coming on board. They've done it a certain way for a long time, but actually, you know, there's all types of legislation getting passed now to actually enforce upfront ticket pricing. And I do think this will be the way that everyone does pricing for ticketing, you know, over the next five years or so. Yeah, I'll be fascinated to see how it, how that all develops. I know that DICE has invested heavily in analytics and how you think about offering the best service. And so much of this also ties back to ensuring that consumers themselves are the ones that can get their hands on tickets. So how do you address bots? Because I know that's an ongoing concern for ticketing. Yeah, with bots in particular, we were very fortunate that we started the company when we did and we built this from scratch as a mobile company. The main thing for us really with any bots or any really anti-secondary measure is that for the most part, you know, everything is happening on mobile. We actually have two of the founders of Google DeepMind were seed round investors of ours. And very early days, we were terrified that one of the reasons that the company would fail would be that we would crash on a big on sale. And we used to call it the Radiohead test. Like if we could survive a Radiohead on sale, we could survive anything sort of thing. And we actually worked and we had our CTO at the time go into DeepMind and like work with a couple of the developers there thinking about the architecture that would support, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions to support hot on sales, but also to think about how we could protect against, you know, fake people trying to buy tickets. So we've done a lot there, a lot around security and yeah, we haven't had a problem with it to date. So we hope that that continues. But I think honestly, the biggest thing is that we've built this all ourselves. We have this huge, amazing product team who blow my mind every day, every year that we do this. And yeah, I think that they've built something really special. That's not something like many other ticket companies have been building on the same, they've been building on the same platforms for many, many years. And, and I don't think it's as new or as, you know, as capable of handling some of these bad actors as, as we are. And I think too, on the analytics piece, you've also used a lot of that to inform how you think about whether it's helping artists or venues or promoters think about capacity or other dynamics involved with selling a show or with putting a show on together. Can you walk us through that process and how that informs the end product that the consumer sees when they go to a show? Oh, totally. Yeah. Our first hire was a data scientist. So... I don't know. It's like, we're starting a ticket company. What do we need? Okay. Like you might think, I don't know, someone from another ticket company or, you know, an operations person or like someone from a venue. Like we were like, no, let's hire a data scientist first. Cause we knew that our superpower would be personalized recommendations and building an algorithm that was extremely sophisticated, that was going to show people the right shows for them, shows that we know that they like and shows we think they're going to like at the right time. And yeah, so we hired this amazing guy, Greg, who still works for us and shout out to Greg. And he's been part of the team now for many years that's been working on how to ingest all the different data points we have, starting with our onboarding process, which is all about, you know, syncing with your music library, but also, you know, an onboarding process showing you different artists and genres and everything. And then starting to record all of your different behaviors in the app, which shows you're going to what you've been on a waiting list for, what you've saved, what you're browsing a lot of, and using all of that to inform your Discover page, which is really the heart of Dice and the home screen when you go in there. And when we have like a critical mass inventory in a city that we're in, like in London or Paris or Barcelona or New York, once we have that inventory, then 
you have an extremely personalized experience that feels almost as personalized as your streaming experience can be, where there's enough inventory that you're going to see things that you're really passionate about and excited about. And we're going to package that up in different ways for you. We're going to show you things that your friends are going to. We're going to show you the genres you like, your favorite artists. We're going to show you things from your music library. We're going to show you all the shows that have been announced for you from the last seven days. Like fans are always missing these announcements because there's no coordination between venues or promoters on when things announce. It's just all getting announced all the time, every day, hundreds of announcements. So when you're looking at putting up, like in London, we're adding maybe 1500 shows a month. In New York, it's not far from that either. There's so many shows, right? <laughs> like how as a fan are you supposed to filter that? So we filter for them using the data and the algorithms that we built so that we're only telling them about on a Thursday, here's the shows that were announced to you this week. And that's really where all of that, you know, that's the biggest piece from a fan perspective of where that, all that investment that we've made in data analytics really comes to life away from the numbers and the stats and everything. That's like the real world use of it. And uh, that's what's driving, you know, that massive percentage, that 40 percentage of sales that we're seeing come from discovery and from the push notifications we're sending. And that, like I said before, I think the person, the people that really benefit from that is the artist because that's just sales that are just happening organically through the product that we've built and not another post that they have to do or another ad they have to pay for, which always comes out of their pocket eventually. So yeah, that's where that investment pays off. Yeah, that 40% number is quite high. And it's impressive, I think, just given that this isn't something where people are necessarily consuming the product itself on the platform, right? And I think sometimes that discovery versus on-demand breakdown, you would likely expect that more from, as you mentioned, streaming, something where you are consuming the actual product there. So the fact that you've been able to do that there is quite strong. And I do have to assume that given the investment that's been put into the data science and the fact that you can direct people and understand what people like, are there any desires or goals to be able to use the platform and the insights you have on these customers to offer them things in addition to concert ticket notifications or things like that, or other ways to leverage it, knowing that you're reaching music fans? Yeah, there's two, there's two parts to that. One is, I think, uniquely with Dice, we've built it in a way that what we saw before was that people would discover the show in one place, then they would listen to the artist on their streaming platform, they would invite their friends through their messaging app, and then they'd buy their ticket from the ticket company. And what we tried to do was build that stack into Dice. So you're going to open Dice and discover the show. It's all integrated with Spotify and Apple Music to preview the artist there, so you can listen to the artist in the app. You can invite your friend directly through the app, and then obviously buy the ticket there as well. So what we see is more of the journey happening there. Obviously, the event itself happens off of the app, but a lot more of the actual process of the functional and the emotional parts of like going to the show, like who you're going to go with, for example, that can all happen within the app. And, and people just spend a bit more time in the app than I think that they would on a traditional ticketing site, where it's more like search to purchase is the normal journey for, I'm sure, almost all of the sales. So I think that's where we've managed to extend the amount of time people are in there. We're really excited about sort of commerce in, in general. And we've made an announcement previously around merchandise and sort of doing more merchandise and things like that. And that's something you're going to see a lot more from us in the new year as well. So absolutely. And that's something that we already do. We do some really interesting things with rough trade records in New York and also in London, where we'll do like vinyl bundles with album launch tickets and things like that. So there's already other parts of commerce kind of happening through the app. And ultimately, I think the product is well designed to make it very easy for people to buy things. So yes, whether we're selling them a ticket or 
we're selling an artist something alongside the ticket or we're adding something onto the ticket. I think that it's a natural progression for us and something that we're excited about exploring more. That makes sense. And I know a lot of the data analytics discussion at least we've had here is focused more so on the consumer side. Does it inform as well things on the business side, such as the artists thinking about what size venues that they may want to be in or the promoters thinking about how best to organize things? Yeah, we've been working. I'd say that there's definitely some artists and teams who have been really tapped into that. And, you know, we have a whole artist development team based out of London, New York, LA, and they're working directly with artists and agencies and managers on these data reports where we're really showing them not just where we're seeing a lot of activity from their fans, but we're doing things like suggesting support acts based on other shows that the artists' fans have been to see that might be smaller shows, or we're looking at what cities we think they should play that. We're doing a lot of that on a very kind of bespoke level with artists and, and also working with artists on getting them into more of the dice venues and thinking about really make sure that from day one, they're treating their fans well and building that community on dice, using that weight in this data to plan the next show. There's been lots of successful stories and artists that we've done that with, but just one that's top of mind, the New York artist that's coming up would be Ice Spice, who we're working with on just doing a, a first show somewhere. So it's not announced yet, but our artist team here is working closely with her team on planning something there. And I think that's really exciting, like an artist that's blowing up, who's also really keen to make sure that the experience for the fans is going to be amazing from day one, from show one. So with someone like Ice Spice, who is clearly having a, a moment right now, what does that onboarding of the initial process look like? Is it similar to the Kanye example where these things happen or did someone on your team looking and scouting to see who's bubbling and then reaching yeah. out to be like, hey, let's make this happen? Yeah, I guess I kind of take it for granted now because we've been doing it for so long. But, you know, we literally have a meeting that probably looks more like an A&R meeting at a record label where we're really saying, okay, what are people hearing? What artists are coming through? And that's how we've really like, uh, you know, a, a ton of artists now over the years, we've really identified very early as artists that we want to support and have worked with very closely on different types of shows that they want to do. Like another example that's kind of top of mind would be someone like Kuko, who we identified very early and worked with on this huge block party that he did in LA a few years ago. And and continue to build that relationship with. But there's really like thousands of examples now. So probably over a thousand artists this year, or by the end of the year, it'll be over a thousand artists would have really worked with us very closely, not just on having a show through the platform, but whether we've informed which venue they play or which promoter they're working with or helping them with the marketing on that event or some other really tangible thing that we've done with them. And really that artist development team, I think is part of kind of like the special source of dice. That's like just a bit different to what a traditional ticket company would do. And I really think the fact that we're able to do that is because of the brand that we've built around dice. And it is a platform and a brand that I think artists do feel comfortable with and want to be associated with as well, versus like maybe a traditional ticket company that wouldn't have that same kind of feeling to it. Right. For the A&R piece of it, because I think that's interesting and I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. What are the factors that go into the decisions that you're looking at? Because I know I talked to a few folks and there's been a bit of debate around which stats make sense to follow, which stats don't make sense, what's more signal versus noise. How do you determine that? Well, I think we obviously have obviously this really interesting data ourselves. So a lot of the venues we work with at the smaller level. And at one point I was booking in London a 150 capacity venue. And I thought it was amazing when 400 people would show up for the 150 capacity show and we try and cram them all in. I always thought that was an amazing sign. Those shows were always free, but obviously now we're ticketing around the world, you know, many of the best 
100 to 200 capacity venues that exist in, in some of the best music cities in the world. So what's fascinating for us is to not just be speaking to the people that are running and booking those venues, but to be looking at the data of, okay, which shows sold out on and out at that level and who's got the biggest waiting list at that level. And we see a complete global picture of that. So some of the data points that I think we're finding most interesting are actually the ones that we're seeing very early come from our own data. And then I think that that's always going to be the debate on the, you know, the taste versus or the gut versus data kind of thing. And a lot of that comes from hiring amazing people like we have on our artist development team, whose judgment we trust <laughs> very much to pick the things out that are really going to cut through. But yeah, I definitely think seeing some of those early signals, which may in the grand scheme of things look quite small. But I think if you're playing a hundred capacity show and you have a hundred people on the waiting list, that's a great sign because if you're already driving 200 fans to a show and you're brand new, then I think that's harder than going from, you know, 3000 to 5,000 and finding those 2000 people. I think those first 200 is really difficult. How important is streaming data or social media engagement or following in your analysis? I'd have to talk to the team about how much they're tracking that. I think it feels more like iSpice is a good example of this. So we're talking about iSpice. Morgan on the team who's working with her team is telling me about this track and he thinks it's going to be big and we're talking to them about doing a show. And then in the time from when we first start speaking to her team to today, you know, her Instagram following has gone from, you know, in the tens of thousands to in the millions. And so it's more like a, we're right about this one moment. It didn't matter a few months ago or whatever, that there was only 10,000 followers or whatever, we wouldn't have ignored it because it didn't have millions of followers already. But I think that now it's more like, okay, yeah, that is a good signal that this is really going to blow up. Yeah. And I think just given that large number, it's hard to ignore that. It's been interesting though. I've talked to agents on this platform and they've said that they don't see as much of a correlation between streaming numbers and ticket sales. And of course, I think there's nuance there. Yes someone like Drake or Bad Bunny yeah. that's doing 10 billion streams a year is obviously going to be in arenas and stadiums. But I think it was more so highlighting that some of the newer artists, it can be tougher because you have people that have you know so much of a strong following, but they may not necessarily have that following because of their music or because of other things about them. So, and I think we've just started to see more and more of that. So it does create in some ways a bit of a unique opportunity for the promoters or events companies that can be able to determine, yeah, like what is the true signal and what are the things that have less weight? Yeah. We really want to try and work with managers and agents more and more on providing this data that we see so that they get a sense of what is really happening because it is just so different. I think if someone's put their hand in their pocket and spent $30 on going to a show versus hearing a track on a playlist obviously like it's just not the same type of commitment at all so we're working to keep growing that team and expanding the number of artists that we're having that type of relationship with and yeah anyone listening who wants to get in touch with our artist team is very welcome to as well and you can do that through the site but yeah we're keen to be talking to as many labels and managers agents everyone really who's who's interested in kind of digging into that especially if their artists already have shows on dice as well on, in any of our venues we'd love to get into that with them that makes sense Switching gears a bit, going back to the entrance and really expanding things in the US market, one of the things that stuck out to me from your past interviews was how you talked about how live events and concerts is much more of a localized business. 
And I'm sure that the experience that you all had in Europe and everything in the UK, there's slight, there are likely some differences considering things being localized, whether it's in New York City or some of the other markets here. What are some of those notable differences that you've picked up on in the US and some of the cities in the US as opposed to things in the UK? I'd say that one of the biggest differences is more of a technical thing, I guess, for us, which is that in European markets, the people who actually control the tickets, it's much more spread. So on one show, you could have 10 ticket companies selling tickets for the same show. And then it's really just like on the fan to have a preferred outlet or who's, you know, boosting their link the most, honestly. So it's a little bit different versus the US where it's exclusively with the venue. So every show pretty much has one ticket company and it makes the market difficult to break into, honestly, because of that. It's very binary. You're either working on the show or you're not. Versus when we started in London, we could say, hey, to a promoter, we want 10 tickets to the show and we would be able to list the show. So if you were going onto the app, you could see all these amazing artists playing, but we didn't have more than 10 tickets sometimes or 20 tickets versus the US where you really have to have the whole inventory and you have to be in a position to do it. I also think that how the market worked in Europe was one of the reasons that we invested so much in the discovery piece because we were competing on every single show we had to sell our allotment of tickets versus in the US, I think the ticket companies as soon as they've signed a venue, they're almost more lazy maybe about it. So they haven't spent so much on discovery piece. And I think that's why, you know, our discovery story here and the way that it's working here is kind of a rich one and, and honestly just better for fans. But we needed to do it that way around. I think it would have been much harder to start here and then go into Europe. So I'm glad it works the way it did. But that's been one of the big differences. I think for us, really, we're just excited about finding all of the best kind of quality independent operators, whether they're promoters or venues and really helping them grow their businesses as well. And we love venues that have just really well curated programming. Like we love the programming at Elsewhere, for example, is another New York venue that we work with where super diverse, amazing program that just kind of ticks all these different boxes, but always hits this quality bar that just seems like almost impossibly high. Like every night it's really special. So we're really like excited about working with people like that. And New York's like such an amazing city for music. So it's nice that this is kind of our main base here at the moment in the US. Yeah. And given that in the US, things are much more all or nothing, does that have any type of impact on how the tickets may go throughout the entire process. I know at least in the US, I've seen a few things where if a ticket is on for a while, and we talked a lot about scalpers and just their influence when tickets and the demand increases, right? We haven't talked as much about when the demand decreases, because I know that times I've seen things where artists will have their tickets go on Groupon and places like that where they'd be offered for a much lower price. How has that piece of it been in the US where let's say there's a show that you've wanted to put on and if the resellers are needing to sell for the same price, but the demand itself may not necessarily reflect where it is or if the artist is struggling to sell, how does the pricing dynamic impact that? Yeah, I think you obviously see that and not every show can be a, a sellout with, you know, tickets you know, being sought after. I think that there's different strategies around that always. I, th I think that for a lot of our partners, they're more used to handling all of that themselves, where maybe we might be able to work on doing like competition strategy or just doing discounts or looking at other marketing channels or extra support that we can give to a show, whether that's really checking that we've done and reached all of the different audiences we think might be interested in the show and really keeping that as mobile and really trying to stay away from email. Honestly, I think that one of the changes, if you think about how event marketing has changed through the years from kind of 
posters to magazine adverts to heavy social media to email i think those email days are very much on the way out and really focusing on our push notification strategy and just having a very sticky product that people are going to keep coming into naturally to check that's going to be the best way to really thinking about increasing sales on low selling shows i think it was also a really interesting summer for people just being very honest about their ticket sales like there was literally artists just coming out and saying you know what we're canceling these shows we haven't sold enough tickets like that was kind of new i think people haven't been that straight up before but that was definitely happening a bit this summer and i think that it was a hard summer for lots of artists and, and lots of events and and also some people had some huge success so it's definitely a kind of uncertain time still only obviously one year or so out of covid and shows being back and i think that people are still feeling some of that after effects there was a obviously huge rebound last summer that we really felt here as we were putting together the team still. And then suddenly we had all these venues turning on and using the product for the first time. So that was an interesting, interesting experience. But this summer, I think things kind of bounced the other way a little bit and we're going to hit a steadier stride coming into the end of the year. And I think next year is one that people are going to find easier to plan for, hopefully. Yeah, I bet. And I think that we saw a few things happen this summer. As you mentioned, there was some success, but I think it definitely was a bit subject to that power law, right? Where the folks at the top were able to sell out and have their tickets sell for whatever the dynamic pricing set them at. And then a lot of the artists that were either your middle class of artists or emerging definitely struggled. But one area that I do see a huge amount of opportunity is Latin America. And in our Trapital Culture Report 2022, we talked a lot about how much growth Latin music has had, of course, Bad Bunny, but there's many of other artists as well. What does your Latin American strategy look like for Dice? I saw that in your report and yeah, it totally reflected what we have been seeing as well. I actually pulled the stats to share with you as well as you've done such great work. So it was fun to kind of pull something back. So Latin ticket sales for us increased nine times in the past year. So 829% 2022 to 2021 and Latin events listed on DICE have quadrupled 2022 from 2021. So we're absolutely seeing the same. It's obviously huge. We've been working with people like the Paramount in LA and for a long time we're working with lots of Latin artists. We just did a show last year with Carol G, United Palace. We did the Cuco show I mentioned, we did Bad Girl in Spain. And also we haven't touched on it yet in this interview, but last year we bought Boiler Room and they've also had a lot of success with Latin and reggaeton programming and, and worked with many artists especially at Primavera Sound in Barcelona, which was another another one of the festivals we worked with where we had a boiler room stage this year. And they had this amazing program there, which included lots of Latin acts. So I think that, yeah, like I think the whole industry is feeling it. I think it's super exciting. I think it's so cool. And I think that people are still discovering a lot of this incredible talent. And it just feels like a nice moment to have that exposure. I think for us more on the venue side, we're also doing this big push into Miami. And we just signed our first venues in Miami. And we're really excited about building that up there. And we just signed club space there. But there's many, many more venues there that we're looking to sign. So yeah, I think this is just like an interesting time. We're probably a little bit further away from actually launching in Latin America itself. But you know, our partners, Primavera Sound, are just doing over the next couple of months are doing their first festivals down there, which are selling really well. And like they're going to be really, really well. So definitely got my eye on maybe trying to make it down for one of those and checking it out. But yeah, it feels exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. Ninex is impressive. And it's especially impressive because I think that a lot of the folks in the music industry are seeing the top line numbers on Latin and they may assume, okay, well, yes, the Bad Bunny effect, his album is dominating. The difference for you all though, is that you don't have 
artists that are like the Bad Bunny level. Well, I know you're working with them, but since you're primarily focused on that 200 to 10,000 capacity, it means that you're seeing this at that level too. And that says, and I think that should instill a lot of confidence that this isn't just one or two artists that are pulling up everything. This is an entire movement. It's a really good point. Yeah. I think that's a really nice way to look at that data. And that's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely what we're seeing. And I think definitely it's hitting that point where it's not just that kind of trickle down effect, but it's also like this bottom up groundswell of artists coming through. So yeah, that's definitely the right way to think about that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I think that Africa with what's happening with Afro beats and some of the other subgenres there, that's next up. It's only going to, I mean, it's already happening, but it's only a matter of- It's happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, we see those numbers start to have even bigger and bigger market share overall. Yeah. It gets me excited because we're, you know, it takes so much every time we launch into a new country and we kind of have to do it kind of one by one. It's a big focus. And, but we really want to build Dice into being a global business and be truly global. And, and that doesn't mean just the kind of markets that have this really established touring infrastructure, all these other things. We want to be everywhere and explore all, all of these different genres and, and cultures in a way that, that makes sense. And yeah, we're excited to be everywhere. So in the next few years, <laughs> but in the meantime, yeah, we're helping, you know, do what we can to support all different types of music and subgenres of music and subcultures within music. And we just keep an eye on what we think the next big thing is going to be as well. Definitely. Well, Russ, this has been great. Before we let you go, though, what's one big thing that's on your radar for DICE that you're focusing on for 2023? I think for us, the big thing for us next year is really going to be expanding across the rest of the country here. We are really excited to be in tons of cities and there's so many amazing music cities in the US, as, as you well know. And we're excited to keep building and be everywhere because we want to be sat having conversations with artists where we can talk about doing a full US tour with them, playing all in venues that we work with and helping them to plan how to grow across the country. So that's going to be the big push for next year. Nice, exciting stuff. All right, well, if people want to follow along with Dice and if they want to set up their own profile, where do they go? They can go straight to dice.fm. So that's the best place if you want to partner with us, if you want to get in touch with our arts development team, if you're a promoter or a venue that wants to work with us, everything's there. If you want to buy tickets and play around with the app, then head to you know the app store ios android and download the app and have a play around with it and yeah let us know what you think and people are more than welcome to get in touch with me directly as well so it's just russ at dice.fm and they can email me directly it's great nice sounds good and yeah the next time that kanye throws one of these impromptu listening parties or these wyoming <laughs> get-togethers i'll look to see if i see that dice redirect <laughs> Yeah, I will, uh, I'll let you know if it's going to happen. I'll give you the heads up. All right, sounds good. <laughs> Thanks again, Russ. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.